Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 40 of Reformed Podmatics. I am Pastor Mark. I'm Pastor Zach. And we today will be jumping into an important topic for all Christians to be thinking about. Um, It's kind of the mirror opposite in some ways of our last episode where (laughs) we examined Roman Catholicism. Now we're going to go to the opposite extreme in in many ways, um, and to be discussing this topic of the charismatic church. Um, And maybe we could just start by saying, how do we define the charismatic church? What would be some distinctive markers of a charismatic church to you, Zach? A charismatic church to me is a church that emphasizes and makes normative the use and implementation of the so-called sign gifts. So, particularly speaking in tongues, uh, miraculous healings, and prophecy uh, uh, in the life of the church, and particularly particularly in the life of, of individual Christians. Uh, some churches, to, to more or less uh, de- different degrees, will sort of say, you have to do these things to be a Christian, and mm. these are evidence of your, you truly being a Christian, whereas other charismatic churches can tend to be a little bit more broadly evangelical, uh, and they will say that you don't have to do these things, but certain people will have these gifts. But to a general degree, people will, it will be uh, emphasized, I think, in the life of the church. Yeah, and then, um, so I would say that gets to some of the particular theological kinds of emphases in the charismatic church, but I would want to add there are a lot of practical signs that mm-hmm. one would be at a charismatic-leaning church. And yes. so I would kind of include also a certain expectation of worship, um, yeah. a very uh, high-energy mm-hmm. um <laughs> to get really particular, uh, very loud instrumentation. Yeah. Um, the very uh, emotion, emotive, um, emotionally driven in a lot of mm-hmm. ways. Um, and an expectation of a high emotional experience would yeah. be something that has come certainly into broader evangelicalism through the charismatic church. Is there any distinction in your mind, Mark, between Pentecostalism and mm. charismaticism? Oh, maybe a Pentecostal church would be expected to be, I mean, it is charismatic, assemblies of God um, would be another stream of that. I, yeah. I, I sort of lump them all together just okay. to be how okay. I think of it. I, in my mind, the only real distinction is that Pentecostals uh, tend to be a little bit more rooted in the like 19th century. And so they ha- they have, mm. they talk a lot about, Pentecostals will talk about uh old school religion, old yeah, time religion. Revivalism, yeah. And so there tends to be a lot more traditionalism in the sense of certain dress codes amongst Pentecostals, uh, whereas charismatics are basically the modern iteration. This mm. is how I, yeah. in my mind, think of the two, uh, where they will 
look and feel like your normal mega church evangelical church uh, in many ways. So the pastors will dress really hip. They'll use right. cool lights and stuff. Uh, Whereas a Pentecostal would look more like a Baptist church. Like yeah, like we have pe- one. In usually town, they're so. going to wear a suit. They're going to uh, yeah. everybody's going to be wearing their Sunday best. Right. But what will, what keeps them connected is their emphasis on the Holy Spirit's activity in the life of the Christian as expressed through sort of miraculous, ecstatic, almost sorts of experiences. Yeah, healings. Healings, tongues, prophecy, interpretations, and so on. That's a really good distinction because I think that those are are two streams where you have um, very modern uh, charismatic movement that uses a lot of I would say worldly methods to appeal to the the seeker or the member. And on the other side of that, you have the more traditionally charismatic who, Hmm. like you said, are going to, to, to be, um, more, more traditional in a lot of ways, not just with dress, but, um, but Mm -hmm. probably with worship to a certain extent, like you, they would sing a hymn, um, at one of those Pentecostal services, Mm -hmm. uh, Fanny Crosby hymns are probably a big factor. Um, which I like a lot of Fanny Crosby hymns. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of them are really good. Um, but, uh, but anyways, that, that that is good. More historic, charismatic. Yeah. But really, a lot of what we're talking to be talking about in this episode is that megachurch, mm-hmm. um, Hillsong mm-hmm. influenced, Bethel influenced um, movement that is happening not just in America, but throughout the whole world. Yeah, for um, sure. Really, where um, Christianity is growing, um, you see it growing through uh, charismatic congregations um yeah, especially in the global south right yeah, now yeah absolutely and in and in asia yeah this um this movement has a huge influence for example among uh my friends in nigeria where uh there's a, there's definitely an expectation um even probably in the christian reformed churches of nigeria to uh present a um a worship experience uh, that would be highly emotive and yeah. um you know that isn't necessarily wrong, but but it probably has come more from this uh, charismatic movement than than from uh, reformed history, for mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that's a bit of a definition. I, I think um, to put it really plainly, you can think of the local megachurch with the the light show, the fog machine, the um, the very established liturgy of four worship songs um, with a lot of repetition in them, Mm -hmm. followed by um, a a sermon, a high-energy sermon, Mm -hmm. and one closing song as kind of the new charismatic liturgy. Um, And and I think that just about everybody who's listening to this podcast knows of a church Mm -hmm. that is within 15 miles of their house that would basically look just like that yeah a lot of this has spread through the the rise of what's called the new apostolic reformation which is sort of like the renewal of the charismatic movement and this has then spread its way into the broad christian church uh really through big huge churches that have been very influential one of the biggest is hillsong church with their music hillsong worship Mm -hmm. uh, but also bethel church And it's also spread through the prosperity movement. Televangelists are mm-hmm. often connected in some way or another to the charismatic movement. Now, this isn't to say that a church like Hillsong in Australia is necessarily 
that connected to a prosperity gospel sort of thing, but there there seems to be strains mm-hmm. uh, or variations on the same sort of theme, mm-hmm. and, and there's sort of webs that connect all of this sorts of sort of stuff. Um, but even beyond the evangelical world, I think charismaticism has seen and uh, it has sort of. Uh, jumped across the Tiber into the Roman Catholic <laughs> Church. Mm-hmm. There's Anglican streams of charismaticism, and for all I know, my there could be Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox sort of charismatics. Mm-hmm. Uh, recently, thinking about the Roman Catholic charismatics, this is where Francis Chan has gotten a little bit, I don't mm. know, friendly with Roman mm. Catholics is through the charismatic Roman Catholics. Interesting. Uh, because of his work on the Holy Spirit in his book, Forgotten God. So You would probably meet some of those people at International House of Prayer. Mm-hmm. Um, IHOP. Yeah, Not and, the pancakes. No, yeah. <laughs> IHOP in Christian, in church context is International House of Prayer, yeah. which is a quite a bit large movement. Mm-hmm. And to my understanding, there's actually a good number of Roman Catholic people yeah. who would attend IHOP yeah. meetings. Yeah, so there's sort of an ecumenicism of, yeah. of the charismatic movement, uh, bridging gaps or bridging d- uh, divides yeah. uh, between different groups of Christians. And so it's not just a evangelical thing anymore. It is a pretty, uh, I don't know, pretty... Yeah, it's very uh, broad, worldwide thing, for sure. Worldwide, yeah. global thing that is happening and must be dealt with in some way or must be examined and, and mm-hmm. assessed. And so that's what we're <laughs> going to be trying to do today. And so one of the first things we want to get from or go to from here is just talking about our personal experiences with with charismaticism. It's a very experiential yeah. <laughs> movement. Yeah. So how have we both experienced it? Mark, yeah. you can go first. Well, I grew up in what would be called a seeker-sensitive, seeker-movement church growth movement church, which was heavily influenced by the charismatic church. Um, I, I wouldn't have known that when I was growing up, but that was sort of the water that I swam in was just, we're going to sing the latest songs from Hillsong already, Darlene Check yep. at the time. It was very yep. different types of Hillsong music, <laughs> shout to the Lord and so forth. Um, but yet that sense of new is good, new is better, yep. um, emotional is good. Um, which isn't necessarily untrue, right? But that's that's just sort of the church experience in my mm-hmm. Christian Reformed Church church plant mm-hmm. um, in the '90s and and into the two, early 2000s. So my own church was charismatic leaning, I would say, mm-hmm. not not in the sense that we were expected to speak in tongues, um, but uh, or that there was some sort of word of prophecy that the pastor right. knew that we didn't. But there was an ex- there was an emotional expectation for worship so for the sure. Ethos was more affected than the theology. Yes, yeah, definitely. Okay. And then beyond that, I w- went away to Trinity Western University, which is a great school in um, the Vancouver area in British Columbia. And the real popular church that a lot of students went to was an Assemblies of God. I believe in Canada, it's called an Alliance Church. Um, mm-hmm. And this was very charismatic, where speaking in tongues would happen. Um, there were during pe- the worship, usually? Yeah, during worship, there would yeah. be people in the aisles waving flags during mm-hmm. the worship service very regularly, Liter- a lot of liturgical dance, mm-hmm. um, a lot of uh, you know, very high-energy music, so yeah. <laughs> kind of appealed to college students in 2001 to 2004 is when I went to that school, and that was really when a lot of this was breaking out. Like, yeah. Hillsong was absolutely exploding. Yeah. Um, and so by the time I 
graduated and by about 06, 07, Hillsong was a major music brand in Christianity and Christian culture. Yeah. Um, and so knew, knew the name that, yeah, for sure. Like I went, um, I went and I would go and buy the new Hillsong album the day it came out. Like I, wow. for, for a couple years there from 05 to 08. And I, I was actually very blessed. I think even in hindsight, some of that music was really good. Hmm. Um, and I, the whole thing has really developed into something else, especially with Carl Lentz and, um, yeah. uh, Marty Houston, or Marty, Marty Sampson, um, and, and, and their apostasy basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I would say I have a fair amount of connection historically through my, throughout my life to the charismatic church. Um, I attended a Christian Reformed church while I was in college, but a lot of my friends would go over to this church, and I would I've probably went there fifteen times. Okay. So um, beyond that, I would say just watching YouTube, you're going to encounter yeah. non-denominational charismatic churches. Um, mm-hmm. If you look up. Uh, a sermon on just about any topic, one of the first hits you're going to get is from a mega church pastor mm-hmm. with, you know, maybe seven or 8,000 views on the sermon yeah. um, of the prodigal son or of the 10 commandments or, or whatever. And so, yeah, I would say I have a pretty good grasp of what one would could expect in a sermon from a mm-hmm. charismatic pastor. Um, and, uh, it's not exhaustive, but, uh, I, I don't know. I think I think I would be enough of an authority on the topic to speak clearly. Yeah, yeah. You've How about seen, you? seen enough. Yeah. So for me, I grew up in a pretty, as I've said on the podcast before, pretty vanilla evangelical Baptist church. And then in high school, I I switched churches once I could drive to a formerly United Methodist church that was at the time and still is a non-denominational church, but still, for all intents and purposes, a Wesleyan church. Hmm. So. I, in, in all of that, I was pretty buffered from charismaticism, except for my my worship experience is similar to yours, where our music was very much sort of the hit music of the 90s. It was always, uh, we're always incorporating new songs from Christian radio, which, as we know, is pretty influenced by charismatic, the charismatic movement in general. I would say almost all of it, except for the Gettys yeah. and Sovereign Grace, yeah. would, would come basically from yep. charismatic large churches. At least from a charismatic or a charismatic adjacent church, a church that is ish, charismatic ish, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I would say. Um, And that would be worship music. There's a lot of good Christian artists doing things who are not in really this charismatic movement. But in terms of like music that is written for congregational worship, the Mm -hmm. Gettys and Sovereign Grace are sort of doing their thing. Mm -hmm. And then almost all of the rest of it would be yeah charismatic ish even sovereign grace is still a charismatic reformed ish sure. church calvinistic that. charismatic that, yeah that could be an interesting discussion too but <laughs> uh so all that to say my my life growing up wasn't too charismatic nobody spoke in tongues nobody was prophesying or anything of that sort it was pretty straightforward but my first real encounter as a high schooler, as a freshman, was when I went on my first Mexico mission trip. So, Asael, if you're listening to this, shout out to you. <laughs> uh, and so the church we partnered with uh, in those days, and still that my church in Kingsburg that I grew up at still goes down every spring break, uh, is a, I think it's an Assemblies of God church. Mm. Uh, it's called Iglesia Vida Nueva um, in Mexicali, and it was a Pentecostal church. And so... I can. I will never forget my first time 
during prayer at that church because the first full day we would always spend would be Sunday. So we'd go to church in the morning. And during prayer, it's rarely just the pastor praying. If he prays, mm. the whole church all begins to pray in mm. in in very loud voices. Sometimes, most of it's in Spanish. Yeah, they do uh, that in South Korea too. But sometimes they'll speak in in tongues as mm-hmm. that's happening. Mm. And so that was a very interesting experience and always was. There was lots of speaking in tongues and and that sort of thing. Very emotional worship. And that, I think, fits the uh, Latino culture very well as well. as just sort of the very uh, external uh you're wearing your emotions on your sleeve sort of thing Mm. so that was my first experience and i just thought you know this is mexico it's a different culture they do things differently (laughs) and i'd never seen it in my own american context until uh early college i flew out to indiana and went to a christian music festival called cornerstone it no longer exists but i went because i was while you were into hillsong in Mm. 05 through 08 i was very into hardcore music and so i loved a lot of christian hardcore and punk bands and so i flew out to visit a friend that i had met online a, a guy and we went to cornerstone together and we saw a lot of christian hardcore bands play and I, I sort of knew, but I became very aware at that point then that basically all Christian hardcore is very charismatic. Mm. Um, even some vocalists from different bands, like one band called Fort Today, call, considers himself sort of an apostle. Yeah. Uh, wow. And so there would be lots of... Uh, there was one band called Sleeping Giant, for example, where they it would after their set they invited everybody to stick around for healings and they would perform healings on people. Um, so that was a, like a huge deal. Everybody would get excited about that. I can remember at, at one worship band called Ascend the Hill after their set, uh, somebody came up, came up and spoke in tongues, prophesied in tongues, mm. and translated their prophecy in tongues. That was sort of translated uh, their own three prophecy? different three different gifts on display all in one per- <laughs> moment. And then they also did a healing thing too. And I can remember. Uh, was, was the translation a word for someone in the? Ch- you know what I mean, like, or was it a general? Like, I think so. From yeah, your sin? It, it was also it was in Hebrew. At least that's what it sounded like to me. And I think that he told us it was Hebrew. Mm-hmm. This is actually Chad Johnson of a ministry called Come and Live. I'm not sure if the ministry still exists. He used to be connected to Tooth and Nail Records. So if anybody out there listens to Christian punk music, you'll know what I'm talking about. Like MXPX was a oh, yeah. historic Tooth and Nail Records band. Um, so Chad Johnson is this pretty charismatic guy. And so, yeah, I saw a lot of that mm-hmm. sort of stuff at that, at that festival. And a lot of the friends that I had made from, from the Midwest, uh, were very charismatic. And, uh, so I, I had a lot of experience with that. And one time I got sick and they all prayed for me over the internet, over Skype, and I was told that if I didn't have enough faith, I wouldn't be healed and mm. I wasn't healed. And so mm. that was a interesting experience. And then also as a kid, I did go to a church in Vacaville once um, called the Father's House. And we got there late and we sat in the back and behind us through the wall, we could hear screaming uh, even over the loud worship music. And wow. the pastor then got up and said, hey, did anybody sitting in the back? Just so you know, there's an exorcism happening back there and things are going well. The demons have been exorcised. Mm. So praise the Lord. And that was as a, as a, I probably was about middle school age, 12 or 13. That was very different. Uh, so I've seen a few things. I would say I'm not an expert in it at all, but 
I've seen some stuff. Yeah, and um, we'll do basically the same thing that we've done for our Roman Catholic episode here where we will talk a little bit about some of the the strengths, you might say, or what we, in our humble opinions, um, yeah. <laughs> see as, as uh, positives in this charismatic movement and then move into a time of um, constructive criticism. Again, mm-hmm. we hope, just like we, we hope to do in the Roman Catholic episode, uh, we hope that this would just cause people to think. Um, it would be, I would say, more likely that some of the listeners of this podcast would be more directly influenced by the charismatic movement than the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. Um, there's there's more of a, a distinct divide, I would say, between Roman Catholicism and the Reformed Church, whereas charismatic um, leanings and sensibilities can, they really have trickled They're more all, th- all throughout evangelicalism, yeah. I would say. Yep. Um, and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean there's this terrible wave sweeping over all of evangelicalism, kind of like what John MacArthur would say. <laughs> and so we need to lash out against um, these evil charismatics. That's not really our attitude. Um, but to be at least a little bit aware of um, the, where this leads and where its theological underpinnings lie. Um, yeah. So I, I, I'm going to read from, from what Zach appreciates about the... Uh, <laughs> the uh, charismatic church and he says he struggles with the movement a lot and uh so how would you (laughs) we're supposed to start with some nice things but um and you could talk about that um how how you struggle with it is that i i honestly feel as though it doesn't contribute much that that the traditional historic church already has Hmm. so this is something that i i found really helpful (laughs) in a friend of mine's article that he wrote uh i think last year as he he came out of the charismatic church, he became a Christian in a charismatic church. Yeah. I think it may have even been a church that was connected to Bethel Church mm. um, and to Jesus culture. Um, and so he was sort of discipled in that church for a few years as a as a new Christian, and then uh, made his way into Reformed Anglican theology. Um, so him and I are are pretty close, and he wrote a really interesting article where he basically says like everything that charismatics propose or say that they offer can actually be found in the in the church the church the the historic christian church believes in the supernatural and it believes Mm -hmm. in the miraculous Mm -hmm. um and so to say that charismatics we worship the the holy spirit the real ones who really believe in all that stuff is a little bit disingenuous i think but um i i think that yeah charismatics can think um evangelicals or reformed guys like us we have the father and the son but yeah. we've forgotten the holy spirit i mean the, yeah, the francis oh, yeah. chan's book is forgotten god and yeah. that's, it's all about the holy spirit and so yep. um so the charismatic movement will often say we are sort of reintroducing the church to the holy spirit to Correct. which your friend res- has responded uh no we really haven't forgotten it looks different in, yeah. in how we talk about the spirit but yeah. uh all of the, the trinity um who is God mm-hmm. can be accessed in a mm-hmm. reformed or Baptist or, or oh yeah uh, ex- exactly Orthodox and church. so 
I think you could look at the look at the great theologians of the church. They have a lot to say about the Holy Spirit and about how the Holy Spirit moves. John think, Calvin is called the theologian of the Holy Spirit. By yeah, some exactly. People. His yeah. work talks a lot about the Holy Spirit. Um, or the church fathers, uh, Saint Basil or Basil on the Holy Spirit is a great little book. Mm. Um, but so there's a lot that can be said in the church church's past about about this sort of stuff. Um, but. So but, not much. To, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> well here's what I will say. <laughs> just teasing you. I, I think, to be honest, I, I have a pretty bad taste in my mouth from it all, and so I don't mm. want to yeah. uh, just come out just blasting, guns blazing uh, about it. Uh, but but I do think that there's an interesting connection between in the whole in the charismatic movement uh, between the emotions and the Holy Spirit, as if robust emotions wearing them on your sleeve Mm -hmm. is almost automatically the work of the holy spirit there's a correlation there which i would say is sort of a confusion uh and it's very unfortunate but uh all that to say if we're talking about what i appreciate about the charismatic movement uh is that there is a an excitement there is a joy Mm -hmm. that is to be found sometimes i i will find that it's concocted joy it's mm. sort of worked up joy, cooked up. Manufactured, um, yeah. But there is there there actually is a lot of passion. And I think that, that that is a good thing, and I think that that is uh not normal in our world. Um and I think charismatic the charismatic movement is super successful because we live in a sort of flat flattened imminent frame, as Charles Taylor would call it. We live in a materialistic universe and people I think are beginning to feel entrapped in this sort of thing. And so the charismatic church offers a strong antidote to that by saying, look, there's more than what Mm -hmm. meets the eye out Mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. There is uh, the power of God and the power of God can move and do amazing and incredible things. And so in this sense, I think that there is a a good renewal. Um, This is me being as gracious as I can be. (laughs) They, They are causing other Christians to, uh, take seriously the the supernatural nature of our religion of our faith yeah there's a movement called the dunamis movement and so dunamis is the greek word for power mm-hmm. and i believe it's kind of connected to the reformed uh reformed churches um charismatic leaning people in reformed churches are would be a part of this dunamis project mm-hmm. and um and that it's that power mm-hmm. that is um outside of a worldly say uh, political economic mm-hmm. um personal power mm-hmm. uh, and it, it is supernatural yeah and, and so that that's generally what i would agree with would be a strength of the charismatic movement um i, I would say because of that the charismatic christian would approach worship with more expectation with more anticipation perhaps of what god might do at a worship mm-hmm. service um than um, you know, this has become popular as a reaction to an era of Protestantism that looked so strongly at theology and head knowledge um, mm-hmm. that that was that is and should be unsatisfying to a regenerate person. So somebody who's born mm-hmm. again is not just looking for facts about God, yeah. but wants an experience of God, and that's yeah. a good thing. Um, and so, uh, 
the Apostle Paul talks a lot about living in the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, um, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, Jesus said that he would baptize us in the Holy Spirit. And, and so <laughs> what that means to charismatics is probably very different than mm-hmm. what it means to a Reformed person. Yeah. But it still <laughs> does point us to receiving the Holy Spirit. Um, oh, yeah. it, it's this gift, this amazing, powerful, life-changing he, I should say, not it, is, is a gift that we receive. Um, and uh, charismatic Christians have a sense for that. That um, uh, Alongside that, I would say, the charismatic Christians that I've known, um, so one of my pretty good friends, I would say, in ministry is the guy who leads up the prison ministry that I participate in. He is a pastor of a, a really small charismatic church in Salinas. And um, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's, he's a man with an awesome heart for yeah. for Christ and yeah. for uh, ministry. And go he goes into prisons expecting God could cause every man in that facility to be born again just because of a lot of the things that he's seen in his life and what he reads in God's Word. And so like, I appreciate that um, optimism, you might say, yeah. uh, that the charismatic uh, person will have about about God's action in the world, um, and and I think that he's very biblically rooted too, and so that really helps guard this this guy from um, some of the excesses of hmm. of charismaticism. So um, yeah. and and honestly, so I'm I'm an emotional guy, even though I'm a, of Dutch background. <laughs> um, I would say I'm atypical in that way, maybe. Um, but I, I think that it's good that charismatic Christians feel like they are able to show their emotions during worship um Mm -hmm. and i think that often there's a danger to that because it's expected to just be a positive emotion i don't know if if people (laughs) left a worship service where everyone was um cut to the heart and grieving their sin yeah i think that that would that would probably be regarded as a bad thing in Hmm. particularly megachurch charismatic context there's a sort of thought that the Holy Spirit's effect on you will be a positive, mountaintop. joyful, yep. mountaintop sort of thing. That's it, yeah. right? And so, um, I think it's good that people would be would feel able to show their emotions. And this is very biblical. It's very Jewish in a lot of ways. As if, if the if, Spirit doesn't grieve. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, right. The Spirit and, does grieve. And grieves. It, yeah, God in the story of Noah, right? He's looking yeah. at this world and Christ at Palm Sunday narrative where he he weeps for Jerusalem because he just yeah. longs to throw his arms around you know this this city that's rejecting him so mm-hmm. um, and so I think that it's it's good that we would be encouraged um, to show our emotions more now obviously there's a weakness that comes along with that and that really segues into the next section of, of mm-hmm. some of our major concerns with um, charismatic Christianity and its modern iteration. Um, Mm -hmm. What would you say is a harmful trend in this movement? I think the, the thing that it all comes down to for me is that it makes the supernatural not normal. I think for the Christian, we are, we're okay with the supernatural, right? Our whole faith is built on the supernatural. Uh, Creation is ex nihilo. God, speaks everything into existence uh 
the incarnation, supernatural, right? Yeah. God becomes man. Uh, and redemption, for the forgiveness of sins is, is supernatural. Jesus even says that that's, that's a more supernatural thing than for him to tell somebody to get up and walk. This is Matthew 9, hmm. uh, where he's healing the uh, paralytic. Yeah, the so second coming. All of this totally supernatural, supernatural stuff is yeah. normal yeah. in the sense that we expect that God can and does do these sorts of things. I think where the charismatic movement goes wrong is by making these things normative for every Christian. And that the Christian life is almost constantly, mm-hmm. nonstop, supernatural. One miracle after uh, another. Right. Yeah. And so the way that a charismatic person reads the Bible they notice that the Bible has lots of supernatural occurrences all throughout the Old Testament. There's all kinds of crazy, stunning things that that take place. Hmm. Uh, and then the New Testament as well, especially the book of Acts. And a lot of charismatic people will say basically we're just living in the extended period of the book of Acts. Hmm. Uh, hence their connection to having apostles and, and hmm. so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, not realizing that the Bible is recording specific events that are happening at specific times in redemptive history. Hmm. Think about all the millions of Jews who lived in the old covenant who did not have supernatural things happening for them every day. Elijah calling down fire to burn the sacrifice that he's poured water all over. That sort of thing is not happening every day. And even in Samuel's case, and the word of the Lord was rare. So it's not even just miracles, but, but the word and there would be generations where this yeah. stuff would go by, and there wouldn't there wouldn't be anything like this happening. Yeah. Amos has a, a drought of the word of God, right? Yeah. That 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 could be a reality for yeah. whole generations. Yeah. Yeah. So the Bible, like a movie, is portraying important events in in the grand story. But just think about all the ordinary life that was lived for most people throughout biblical history. Um, a lot of times, miracles would happen. You know, in the temple, hmm. but the rest of the Jewish people—you're you're living in your home, you're cooking in your meals, you're <laughs> raising your kids, you're praying with them, you're you're teaching them how to read and so on, or whatever you're doing—it's just a pretty normal life. And so, by making everything normative, I think that's where the charismatic movement goes wrong. It almost enforces that God must be doing amazing things. This is why I suspect that charismatic churches. Uh, are so boisterously loud hmm. and expressive. It's because they hmm. because they expect God to be doing big things, as their theology tells them to, that he must be. Uh, they will sort of have a grand production hmm. every week. It's like supernatural volume levels. Yeah, <laughs> and what's also interesting, this is like. How can you plan a revival? We're gonna have a we're yeah. gonna have a revival next Thursday at six yeah. p.m. That's when the spirit's right. gonna move. That's gonna be it. Uh, that sort of stuff is is I don't know. I think it's it's not good. It's, yeah. <laughs> it's just for lack of a better way of putting it. I think it can actually <laughs> be harmful for the witness of the church. Um, and so that would be one of the main things by, but and then you could also relate that to tongues as well or, or prophecies. Tongues is a big one though. Of course, some charismatics will say that you must mm-hmm. speak in tongues. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, you have no evidence of salvation. So that by making tongues normative, which the apostle Paul explicitly rejects, I think yeah. in, in first Corinthians 12, do all have the gift of tongues? No. 
They yeah. don't is the implication. And so I, yeah, I Greek think questions that sort of can be is. asked in a way where the, the right. question is being asked with the uh, not just the assumed answer of no, but the answer is no in, in some of the Greek uh, yeah. vocabulary. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's what's happening there at the end of a fee, or yeah. first Corinthians 12. Do uh, all prophesy, so do by all, making yeah. all of it normative, that's where I think much of the charismatic movement goes astray. Yeah. And where, so like putting some, some meat on that or, or, or connecting that to just regular practical sorts of things, I would say, because there is such a hunger for the supernatural um, and because I think we believe rightly that a miracle won't always happen. Um, there, there won't be a conversion in every worship service. Mm-hmm. Um, there won't be uh, sort of an, an, a miraculous manifestation of spiritual power um, because that won't always happen, but because some expect that it will always happen there has to be some manufacturing um, of an experience, yeah. an emotional experience. And yeah. so uh, one could almost feel a miraculous feeling, mm-hmm. and that would be perceived as the, the Holy Spirit, yeah. um, the work of the Spirit, even though ac- actually it's just that um, very skilled, um, very sort of in tune leaders who are, are really good at understanding music and mm-hmm. um, the power of music yeah. um, and the power of energy in preaching can can weave things in a certain way where it could be confused for the work of the spirit. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't I don't really want to accuse these pastors or worship leaders as doing that intentionally. I think that right. right. No, I don't think they are. And actually, almost all of the charismatic people I've ever met have very really good hearts. Like yeah. they, they oh, yeah. really are seeking Christ, but they're they're confused in their theology about what the work of the Holy Spirit even is. Yes, uh, they equate it with emotionalism. Yeah, and I think that, does the Holy Spirit affect our emotions? Oh yeah, 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 He does. Um, but it's it's more than just. This, it's almost like every week the goal is to come away feeling very excited yeah. uh, or almost like in tears. You're so joyful that you're in tears. Um, mm-hmm. It's to have these sort of ecstatic experiences. But, and part of what I wonder too is, you know, just on an anthropological level, level or a demographics sort of level, the sort of people that are typically drawn to the charismatic movement are more uh, extroverted types of people. And definitely a lot of women. And women. For sure. Yeah. 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 Um, Which we'll get into in a bit with ecclesiology, um, (laughs) pastor, wives sort of stuff. But yeah. um, And it's, if you're an introvert, man, that's got to be a hard world for you to live in thinking that you just don't show it enough. And so you have to basically Mm. stop being an introvert in order to be a varsity level Christian. Yeah. That's one of the problems I think for charismatic churches. Yeah. Um, to correct this, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who really did a lot of good preaching about this kind of stuff, um, hmm. talks about how when he's preaching, um, he actually says that the Holy Spirit will often act in, in surprising ways and not produce a bombastic emotional high for people who are listening, but he'll say, I know the Holy Spirit is working actively when there is just absolute silence under the word of God. Hmm. 
And I hmm. absolutely would agree with that. Yeah. So so he would say the work of the spirit is actually silence. Yeah. And and <laughs> not this outrageous noise. Yeah. Um but uh I, f- I feel that occasionally when I when I preach a night, I know that the Spirit has uh, used mm. the text or, or some of my thoughts on it to really penetrate into the hearts and minds of people. Like I'm sure you've preached in a way that you can feel it. It's like all yeah. of a sudden it hits. It's landing and it's quiet <laughs> um, because it's it's working on. Yeah, there's a solemnity. There's yeah, there's there's like a, you're right. Yeah, it's the Spirit is working on yeah. people. And um, and they're thinking, they're thinking hard all of a sudden. Maybe yeah. for the first time about their sin, or they're yeah. thinking about the gospel. And um, instead of just feeling, yeah. the the spirit engages. It, it's like the spirit connects the heart and mind profoundly in yeah, a he, moment. The whole person. Yeah, and uh, and th- so that's what what Lloyd Jones would say is, hmm. I know the spirit is at work when people are thinking very seriously and in a very focused way on the gospel yeah that makes me think of what i once heard about how well lots of charismatic people they will they will see that if you're if you're full of the spirit you're going to be dancing around yeah sometimes even you'll be slain in the spirit depending on how uh charismatic your church is or pentecostal you may be flopping around on the ground i've seen that sort of thing as well um but what about the fruit of the spirit being self-control Mm-hmm. Uh, what about how the spirit is to bring us a, a sober mind, a mind that is able to think soberly, not and just not not just sober without alcohol, but just straight thoughts, uh, clear thinking. And that's yeah. I think that's what he does. That's what the spirit does. And I think that's related to gentleness, which you're going to preach on in a few weeks is yeah. um, gentleness isn't about just not hurting people. It's about having sort of a deft touch. Like yeah. a um, a sensibility of um, a kind of not not just um, not just not being abusive or something. That's how we think of gentleness is like somebody who doesn't abuse other people. Yeah. But there's a gentle there's a, a warmth a gentleness in the spirit's work. At, at times it will be miraculous and amazing, but the fruit of the spirit is gentleness, and yeah. and he gently coaxes us along at times mm-hmm. in uh, in the truth, and so. Um, I I do think we probably both agree that calling emotions the greatest almost goal of of a worship service um, is is really present. And I would even say that's probably what connects traditional Pentecostalism with modern charismatic megachurch movement is just the heightened value of the emotions in both contexts. Yeah, yeah. Um, So that would be one sort of large... Yeah. criticism that we would have i think we also are in agreement when we say that typically the charismatic tradition if we can call it a tradition is not very strongly theological mm-hmm. it does not place a high value on the life of the mind and part of this i think is that because the sort of origins of of charismaticism or the um, the holiness movement which is what it was really born out of which the holiness movement is born out of Methodism. There's sort of a interesting history there back through the second great awakening, but in all of it, it's been pretty fundamentalist. Hmm. I would say anti-intellectual, anti-intellectual in particular. Yeah. Yeah. And so (laughs) one of the, perhaps the best example of this is the sort of snake handling Pentecostals Hmm. in 
in uh like i think it's alabama um the south for sure yeah, yeah, where yeah they, maybe appalachia too yeah. yeah so they take the the extra passage from mark which most christians would be happy to uh reject i mm. think uh from the end of mark's gospel uh and they t- where it talks about <laughs> Uh, drinking poison and not dying or handling snakes and not being bitten. And so this sort of thing, and they, they'll do this sort of stuff, but, but, but not just that. I think that charismatics, there's not a whole lot of work in theology. There's definitely books. That's, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, are there great books though? Like can, can either of us name a really great book by a charismatic author? We read a lot of books. I know people who are open to the signs that write great books. Okay. Yeah. Um, or like, dense theological books um i leonard ravenhill is a name that strikes me as being a little bit more theologically astute Hmm. um i'm not sure exactly which like denomination or whatever he comes from but i know he is charismatic of some sort martin lloyd jones would call himself he would lean charismatic but i think that's probably in the mid 20th century definition of the word more than the late 20th century, 21st century. Yeah, definition. 70s and 80s is where things went yeah. really interesting with the Toronto blessing sort of stuff. Yeah, uh, I think that's when it, that took place. The Jesus movement, mm-hmm. all that. Yeah, and so, like, if we think of um, again megachurch culture and Pentecostalism, I, I really. You you think about the theological rigor of yeah. um, both the education level of ministers in those contexts mm-hmm. and sermons and the yeah. books that they're producing, the songs that they're writing. It's it's five inches deep. It is it is very very shallow. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Max Lucado, I, I I don't think I would call him just a charismatic outright, but. But there's a style of writing, mm-hmm. like a Max Lucado style, um, that is just, um, for a really mature Christian, it mm-hmm. could be occasionally helpful, mm-hmm. but but for somebody who really wants to dig deeply into matters of great theological significance, um, there's just going to be no help there. Which is why I, I think I see a trend of lots of people going to megachurches, mm-hmm. coming in through the doors of the church, you can mm-hmm. say, at a megachurch. And then eventually, just feeling like they're hitting a, a glass ceiling of of growth and discipleship, and then coming to, you could say, more historically minded churches. Yeah, um, I saw this a lot in Orlando when I was in seminary. There was a non denominational Baptist ish church, uh, and a lot of people would get married and then move on to one of the PCAs in town, <laughs> uh, one of the Presbyterian mm. churches. Well, and maybe a little anecdotal story about this. Um, and it's not just a lack of theology. Sometimes it's an outright hostility towards intellectual rigor. Um, Eugene Peterson is a pastor. He translated scripture into a paraphrase, into a book, I would call <laughs> the message. It's not a translation of the Bible. It's his, he doesn't it's his interpretation. Uh, and so anyways, he created this book, The Message. And uh, so he's theologically very rigorous. He studied Greek and Hebrew mm-hmm. really hard, and he translated the whole Bible himself, um, which is very impressive. Um, but he says he, he grew up in a, in a very charismatic context, and he recounts this in his memoir, The Pastor. And he talks about going to seminary because he needs to learn more and grow more before he becomes a pastor. And mm-hmm. there were people in his church who said, do not go 
they hated that he wanted to go to seminary. Hmm. They they said real Christian faith is simple faith. It's childlike faith. Hmm. Um, and I would even add to that childish faith. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's it's just Jesus loves me. This I know, which is is good. And and even some of the great theologians, Karl hmm. Barth. Uh, Herman Bovink, they would write about how important it is that we know that Jesus loves us. Yeah. But at the same time, can also mind the depths of church history and scripture and theological history as well. So mm-hmm. um, Eugene Peterson was like almost an outcast in his charismatic church for wanting to go and learn yeah. because the perception was we don't think we feel. Um, we don't We don't care about. And I guess we they were probably right because he became you, a Presbyterian pastor, and that probably was not exactly uh, the the best, most welcomed news for for his his home church. Right, and so learning is a threat yeah. in, in a lot of ways in in that context, yeah. um, and and not just that, but there's a bit of a disdain for guys like us, probably, yeah, like um, who would pick up Bovink's church dogmatics or even who would have an interest in somebody like Karl Barth, like, what did he say, you know, about this? Um, instead of, well, you guys are just have your head up in the clouds and you need to come down to sort of where we are in the world. Um, I would argue that those great theological heroes can understand a lot more about the world itself yeah. um, than, uh, than just the, uh, the surface level applications that one would find yeah and i think here i could even also level a critique which is certainly not true of most of the charismatic world but that can be its cultish tendencies Mm. i think Mm -hmm. uh, to really uh, erect strong boundaries and borders with an us versus them mentality and a then this also leads to interesting models of ecclesiology where the pastor essentially takes on the role of the being the pope of his own church. Um, yeah, he is unquestionable. Uh, unquestionable. I've heard a lot of people say, "How dare you crit- criticize the Lord's anointed?" Yeah. Uh, when I, I've read comment threads on on you know famous mega church charismatic pastors YouTube videos, and people will have a criticism, and then everybody else will jump on that person. Right. That uh, they're unquestionable. They're infallible, and so they wield unquestionable authority and people can get really hurt and i've i've read plenty of of stories of people who have come out of these sorts of churches where it very much was like a cult in, it, in that it uh was almost inescapable and mm. uh it was they felt like they were in a cage or in a prison and a lot of a spiritual abuse sort of things can happen in these environments this isn't to say that we're immune to it yeah uh, this isn't to say it's there in every tradition that, that, yeah. Uh, yeah christianity is immune to it <laughs> it's just i think that there are there are systems in where it becomes it can become worse and i i think that the charismatic church is very i think open uh or vulnerable to yeah. to that happening well and that that gets to another one of my points which is that charismatics are such easy targets for skeptics and atheists um Mm. agnostics and and part of the reason is uh, well i think we should think of it this way christianity according to um first corinthians one and two will be considered foolishness 
hmm. by its nature um, yeah. from the worldly person. So the resurrection, the forgiveness of sins through the death of Christ. Yeah. Um, th- there is faith required in order to uh, to be a Christian. You you must have faith mm-hmm. in the supernatural and a miracle. Yeah. Um, and so that's already there. But I think that what charismatics often will do is is go so much further um, believing in all kinds of, like the signs and wonders um, the prophetic cultish mm-hmm. leader of the local church yeah. that it makes the gospel even easier to reject um, mm-hmm. by the agnostic or the skeptic um, some of the silliness quite I think frankly Paul talks about that too and I think it's first Corinthians 14 mm-hmm. where he says the outsider may come in and if he sees you yeah. all speaking in tongues out of order he'll say like what is going on <laughs> yeah here? right um, it's not real yeah yeah, yeah. And, and and so it can when it's manufactured the worldly person I think can perceive that picks up on that and maybe they should pick up on it yeah um, and uh but where Christianity is more ordinary, more um, more simple, to be quite honest, and has also that intellectual grounding, hmm. um, the the skeptic will sometimes be surprised. Yeah. So so this is where it is a is a real problem that the charismatic movement is taking such a foothold in evangelicalism mm-hmm. in its anti intellectualism mm-hmm. and in its um, sort of just feel don't think. Mm-hmm. Because that's going to be an even easier target for oh, the yeah. skeptic to to push back against. Um, that that is becoming what Christianity, evangelical Christianity, is known for. And mm-hmm. occasionally, so Paul Vanderclay has a, a channel on YouTube, and people are always absolutely shocked to find a Christian who's thinking so hard. Yeah, yeah. And I think the reason that they're surprised is the prevalence of the charismatic movement. Yeah, it's such a huge movement that. I would say the majority of Christian churches today in the United States and elsewhere are probably at least influenced yeah. by charismatic theology to a pretty uh, serious degree. And so oh, I even people think, who come yeah. out of churches, which we have a lot, there's a lot of people these days, we all, we're all aware, who are walking away from the church, a mm-hmm. lot of them have some sort of experience with charismaticism gone wrong yeah <laughs> and they when they hear a thoughtful christian uh talking who can actually interact with them on a deep intellectual level it can be a strange phenomenon to them because they almost to them it seemed like every church that they ever found or went to uh was pretty anti-intellectual mm. uh mm-hmm. and didn't have m- much to say or to give in a way any ways of giving an account for uh for their beliefs yeah and uh maybe another um critique which is going to sound very particular and um almost directed at certain people but it's actually a huge trend in in charismatic movement is nepotism so uh not a word that we often use but this is the (laughs) idea that um there is preferential treatment given to family members of a leader Mm -hmm. and um you see men who are ordained in charismatic churches whose wives are expected to preach mm-hmm. um you see and called pastors basically yeah, and just called because pastors. they're 
the yep. wife of, of the pastor and they become s- pastors you see also the uh the mantle being handed down to the next generation of mm-hmm. so a, a son of that pastor being expected mm-hmm. to become the next pastor of that church yep um and particularly i think the the spouse issue the wife issue is is extremely prevalent almost yeah. expected in in a lot of charismatic places yeah. And um, there's just absolutely no biblical support for this. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it, it's it's baffling to me. Priscilla and actually. Aquila would be the one and only. Th- well, that's an example of with. of a husband and wife who are teachers together. Yeah, they're not even, as far as I know, pastors or elders. Yeah, um, and, but and because they're a pair, I think yeah. charismatics today read that and say pastor's wife she's a pastor now yeah they make something that it, there's an example for in scripture normative so again yeah. it's this it's very similar to the miraculous where mm-hmm. yeah there are miracles in the bible that doesn't mean that you will ever see a physical miracle in your life yeah um you know i don't i don't know if i've ever seen one happen before my eyes i think god has healed some people in our church amazingly given Many more years to, especially like uh, one woman in our church who had a brain cancer diagnosis and had very little time to live according to the doctors, and she's still living and mm-hmm. um, enjoying her life today. And so there, there's, there are those things that, that could happen, mm-hmm. um, but uh, making that normative is a big problem. So same thing with Priscilla and Aquila. Yes, yeah. there is an example of a husband and wife in Scripture who teach and are filled with the Holy Spirit, <laughs> but... Um, especially in our context where ordination mm-hmm. requires a certain amount of education and preparation moral and qualifications moral so. qualifications uh te- theological testing mm-hmm. um i believe that those are really good things and if yeah. if my wife all of a sudden is expected to be a teacher because i have gone through that process it's um mm-hmm. not just anti-intellectual it is just very silly to think that yeah and then when thinking about it with sons becoming pastors of their father's Mm. churches. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is quite common too. Um, And I think part of it comes down to the fact that for a lot of charismatic churches, they rise and fall with the personality of the pastor. Yeah. So these churches grow so large because the, the pastor is full of charisma, not, not just spiritual charisma, but, personality he's very charismatic with a lowercase c yeah and uh, often it's looks and it's looks it's just sort of his swag you know <laughs> yeah. his 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 style the way he carries himself uh, the yeah. way he carries himself and he can he have some funny jokes and he can pump people up and so without that that sort of figure at the top the church after the pastor either retires or dies is going to be left in a very difficult place and so one of the best ways to uh, to pass the baton on is to pass it on to someone who's almost basically the same person as the hmm. as the <laughs> father as a senior pastor, which often happens to be the son who can pick up the baton um, and just keep keep on going. And you do see pastors' sons. I, I've heard of stories even in the in the CRC of uh, people who've hmm. been who've had pastors in their family for generations. Yeah, but as far as I've heard, I don't think any of those have been pastors that served in the same congregation right after their father was the pastor there. Maybe that, that's yeah, maybe I don't know happened, of any, but yeah, I know of a lot of CRC churches and I've, I don't think I've ever heard of that. Yeah. It's, 
not coming. And if, if that did happen, they would still have to go through all of the, the, yeah. the process of ordination and being called and discerned. Education. And voted on. Uh, they need yeah. a Master of Divinity degree. Yep. Yeah, and so it's a, and the whole nepotism thing is really interesting. It's a unique sort of idiosyncratic phenomenon that happens in the charismatic world. Yeah, and um, this doesn't mean that that those people can't serve, um, right. but it, it, it means that um, if they are considered qualified based on their relationship, <laughs> that is a huge theological problem. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's, uh, it's just not biblical. Mm-hmm. To th- and I'd be curious if there are any charismatic-leaning people who would listen to this podcast. I would love to hear the biblical support for why a wife of a pastor By virtue preach. of her being the wife. gets to, Because she's yeah. married to the pastor of the church, can preach in a, in a service. Um, I, I would really love to, to hear. Maybe I just need to research that more, but um, it, it just seems, it, it baffles me why how that happens and mm-hmm. it and how common it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's similar in a way to... Um, so at one point, someone just decided that the lights need to be off in the sanctuary and the music needs to be really loud. And I don't know who decided that first, but all mm-hmm. of a sudden that's just become the modus operandi of <laughs> American evangelical churches to turn the lights yeah. off, to have the lights on in the front. And and again, theologically, I don't think that's very good. I think it would be better if we could see each other and... Um, yeah. And the if you're worshiping in the dark, that's one thing. Maybe pre <laughs> pre electricity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, there's a practical reason for that. Um, but uh, it, it's similar in that way to me in how this this just got worked into the organism to the ether sort of somehow. Pure pragmatism. Yeah, and uh, and I don't know where it came from. I don't know. I don't know if it's been questioned. Maybe that's a little bit of a summary of um, of of some of our issues with the charismatic movement. If things always just have a purely spiritual reason, hmm. um, instead of often a biblical reason, then there's no way to question it. Yeah, oh, there, yeah. there's no way to say, um, take emotions for example. Like, how dare you question my emotions, mm-hmm. um, and how dare you question that I love coming out of worship and <laughs> on this emotional high? And I'm not necessarily questioning that, but I am saying. Um, the work of the Spirit, according to the book of Acts, is repentance, faith yeah. in Christ, guidance. Um, the fruit of the Spirit, too. <laughs> uh, yeah, connection to community, um, the yeah. fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Um, those are the works of the Spirit, according yeah. to the Bible. And um, that doesn't necessarily mean heightened emotions every Sunday or even in your devotional time. Mm-hmm. Um there's no way to question something and really examine it if it's only spiritual um, and has no rooting in scripture. Yeah. So, okay. So maybe at this point we give everybody the, the question you've all been waiting for. <laughs> maybe you've been listening to this because you saw the title had something to do with charismatic theology and you wanted to know what pastor Mark and I thought about the sign gifts about yeah. speaking in tongues in particular. Yeah. Mark, take it away. What yeah. is your quick position? You don't have to give a whole long defense, but what yeah. is your position on, on tongues and prophecy? Well, I really like the official position of the Christian Reformed Church. I agree with and believe in that um, we should be cautious but open to the possibility that somebody would speak in tongues, um, hmm. and it should be done in a biblical way. 
um, mm-hmm. not just done because this ecstatic experience has happened. And wow, wasn't that great? Wasn't that so cool that the spirit moved? Well, we have to examine the usefulness of that activity based mm-hmm. on scripture. So was there an interpretation? Mm-hmm. And uh, was it edifying to the, the, yeah, the gathering of people, the group of people? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that would be very rare. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do believe that because the Apostle Paul instructs people to pray that they would speak in tongues, that that would be a good thing. Um, and and so I, I think that that's not just a, a, a command for the church in Corinth, but is a command for the church in general, that, that it would be a good thing to, to that if the Spirit was, man, was manifest in that way, that it would be, for example, so convincing to a non-believer um, that that could be a powerful thing that, that God could use for the expansion of his kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I reject the gift of healing, and I, I really am very suspicious of anybody who would claim to be an apostle, so the gift of yeah. apostleship. I certainly don't think that that is a modern-day gifting. Um, that could be a bit of a term of definition, so I, I believe that term apostle applies to somebody who knows Christ and has interactions with Christ regular or had interactions with Christ regularly mm-hmm. and so uh, of course that includes the 11 disciples who continue ministry and the Apostle Paul refers to himself as one abnormally born because he his interactions with Christ are supernatural Unique. actually and um, yeah. and they're also even through interactions with other apostles as well so mm-hmm. I would say there are gifts of the Spirit that have ceased, um, to use the cessationist term, but um, speaking in tongues, I think I am cautious and try to be biblical, but open to the possibility that it could happen for the edification of the church. Hmm. And I've never seen it in that way, but <laughs> but I think that it could happen. Okay, yeah. interesting. I would say I agree with basically most of what you said, I think, mm. um, I guess I'll add that for me personally, I want to be a cessationist, <laughs> but I really don't feel like I can convictionally get there, mm. um, just given what I see in Scripture. What would make you want to be one? Uh, because of just the charismatic chaos. The chaos, yeah. yeah. So, uh, MacArthur's term. <laughs> I am not a huge MacArthur fan. I've yeah. said said that sort of thing before. <laughs> Uh, but I am sympathetic to his assessment of the problems of the charismatic movement. Um, I don't think you can fit all of cessation or you can fit everything that you want into first Corinthians 13 with when the perfection comes and that whole argument that he makes. I just don't, Yeah, I can't buy into that. Yeah. He says tongues will cease. Yeah. You know, but, uh, love remains right yeah so he sort of sees the apostolic age as that comes to the to an end all of these things cease i'm not c- quite convinced of that um but i see that there's a lot of problems and it would just be simpler to to say <laughs> nope this stuff doesn't happen but i i don't think i am there i don't think i could get there at least i don't foresee how and so i'm left in a position of saying i'm open to it um and the other thing I would add is that I very strongly feel as though t- 
tongues are human languages. This will mm. get me in trouble with some people I know very close to me mm. uh, who believe that they have the gift of angelic tongues. Of course, they root this in 1 Corinthians 13, uh, where Paul says, whether I speak in the tongue of men or the tongue of angels and have not love, I'm a clanging symbol. Um, and so they say, look, that's angelic tongues. Uh, but that, I think, is mere hyperbole. I don't think Paul is actually meaning to say that humans can't speak an angelic language. And my reasoning for this is that in the book of Acts, tongues are clearly human languages that are understandable to some people. Mm. Therefore, I think tongues are an evangelistic gift that God can give for people to have a, to speak a known human language and to therefore preach the gospel in a language they have not studied or or come to know in any way, but they miraculously are able to speak so that they can tell other people the gospel. Hmm. Um, I, I have to leave that door wide open. I have not really seen that other than the time when I was at Cornerstone and I saw the guy speak in tongues uh, in Hebrew, and then he translated it himself, hmm. uh, which I'm not too sure. And I, I think also yeah, could have just memorized when it comes that. to the <laughs> usage of tongues in church, I think... Uh, tongues must be translated. Mm-hmm. If they're not translated, this is why I think it's not a prayer language. I think it's a it's an evangelistic gift. Uh, it must be translated for the edification of all. Uh, and so if yeah. you're just speaking in tongues privately, that's not the right way of using your gifts. Paul also says in, in 1 Corinthians, I believe it's in chapter 11, maybe 12. 11 talks a lot about so it. talks yeah, about how yeah. gifts are given for the edification of the church. So if a gift is given to you and you use it only to edify yourself, like a prayer language, that seems to me to be an improper use of that gift. And so if your gift is only used personally in your prayer, that's a problem, and I don't think that's biblical. Mm. Um, so that's where I would land. I would, would say I'd be cautiously open to it. Uh, so we're not just downright opposed, I guess. <laughs> and um, I like that that approach, cautiously open to uh, the gift of the Spirit. Now a charismatic person listening to this will say, why the caution? Except that God is powerful, God is active, he is on the move, and uh, be open to that. Your cautious attitude is precluding the Spirit from working, um, which I actually disagree with. If you absolutize what the Spirit's work looks like, um, then that might seem like a convincing argument. But I believe I'm called to repentance. I am I am growing in my knowledge of the gospel, growing in grace and truth. And so that caution to the, um, the very exciting, bombastic uh, experiences of the charismatic church does not mean that the Holy Spirit isn't working in my life. He seems mm-hmm. to be doing pretty well. So... Um, and I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm just saying that I, I really do sense God's guidance, God prompting me. Um, for example, um, call so-and-so. I think that spirit very regularly, almost weekly, will pop a name into my mind or have somebody come right, walk right into my office. This happened yesterday. Somebody called me on the phone and said, you need to connect with so-and-so. They're having a hard time. That's the work of the spirit. Hmm. And so I should do that listen to the Spirit's voice. Um, it doesn't require uh, one to believe uh, in speaking in tongues, for example, in order to think that the Spirit will bring to mind the name of a person who needs my care and, and some attention. Yeah. So um, 
Yeah, spirit. Uh, he's alive. Yeah, he, he's at <laughs> he's work. alive and well, and he's at work. And uh, he doesn't just speak to us through the scriptures, but he is speaking to us today, and uh, calls us to to serve people, to preach the gospel, to to love one another. So, mm-hmm. um, so thanks for your attention in this episode, and we would love to hear uh, again feedback if people are have experiences in the charismatic church. If they feel like we've been way off uh, in our mm-hmm. some of our criticisms, uh, we would love to hear constructive criticism of of our own take. So, yeah, it's not a one-way dialogue. Yeah. We, we want to foster a conversation. Yeah, and so thank you for listening, and have a great rest of your week. Yeah, grace and peace, you guys. 